Now, as uh, M- M- Michelle was reading uh, earlier uh, in, in the service, you might have thought, oh, that's too bad. You know, someone, someone must have given her the wrong passage of Scripture because we've already, we've already looked at this story. Like earlier in the fall, this whole thing about lying and, and saying that, that Sarah was Abraham's sister, uh, Phil Darko already preached a sermon on this. And so Ted, now's the part where Ted's going to have to, cl- you know, cl- clarify things and bring Michelle back up and, and read the actual passage of Scripture. No, this is the actual passage of Scripture. And... Uh, it is the next part of the story. This uh, story is very similar to a story that we've already studied in Genesis chapter 12, and that's kind of the point. Uh, some of you might have felt a little bit of deja vu as she was reading, and you're hearing this story, and I, was, I felt like I was sitting in this chair, and I've already heard someone read this story, and it feels uh, just, just like, like this. And uh, the title for today's message is Deja Vu Disaster. Okay, it is a it is a, a, an absolute uh, disaster here. Abraham and Sarah are on the brink of seeing God's long-awaited promise finally fulfilled. They've been waiting twenty-five years, and now they've been given a clear timeline. God told them three times. He told Abraham once and and told it to Sarah twice so she would hear it in chapter 17, 21, chapter 18, verse 10, and verse 14. God said, this time next year, less than 365 days, Abraham and Sarah, the promise is finally going to be fulfilled. You've been waiting 25 years, but this time next year, this is the last year of waiting. Next year will be the year of rejoicing and of celebrating. And on the brink, at the very end, they are about to cross the finish line and Abraham falls flat on his face. Abraham's repetitive propensity to be fearful and self-protective almost jeopardizes the whole endeavor with a cowardly, deceptive, adulterous, deja vu disaster. In fact, if you Look at verse 13 of chapter 20 when Abraham is giving his lame rationalization for why he, he thought this was why he thought this was okay. In verse 13 he says, When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, He is my brother. Every place. Not just Egypt, not just Gerar. They did this in every place. The reason why we're hearing about it in in, in chapter 12 and in chapter 20 is these were the times where they got caught. These were the times where there were actual consequences for their actions. But every time they went to a new place, they did the sister-wife thing. And Abraham, being fearful, being deceptive, being self-protective, continually put his wife in harm's way. And on two occasions, there were some serious consequences. Part of the reason why we have deja vu is the way Hebrew authors in in the Bible write narratives. 
If, if we go back to chapter 12, God made a promise about land, seed, and blessing. And then you have a Sarai is my sister story, Genesis chapter 12. Then you have a story about uh, Abraham's knucklehead nephew, Lot, needing to be rescued because he chose to live in Sodom. Then you have uh, a promise about stars and then the disaster with Hagar and then the covenant of circumcision. Things are, the, the covenant is really being firmed up. But then you have another story about knucklehead nephew Lot getting rescued. Another story about Sarah is my sister. And then the promise ultimately being fulfilled. They're in the land, they receive the blessing, and they have offspring. This is called the chiasm. It's sort of like a Roy, Roy Wahab, when he was preaching in the summer, described the chiasm in Hebrew poetry like a staircase that goes up and then a staircase that goes that goes down. This is the way stories are recorded. So when the promise was first made, Abraham gave the she's my sister lie and they get caught. And right before the promise is supposed to be fulfilled, Abraham does the same thing. What we're going to see from this passage is that Abraham continually showed himself to be a failure and that God continually shows himself to be faithful. You see, the Bible is incredible because the Bible does not hide any of the bad stuff about its main characters. And here's the truth. It's because Abraham ultimately is not the main character. The story is not ultimately about Abraham and how faithful he was. No, the story is about God and how faithful he was, even though Abraham was continually a failure. So if you're here today and you regularly are reminded of your own failings and shortcomings and your own struggle with sin... Uh, if you are living through from time to time a deja vu disaster, then this message uh, is, is for you. I know it's for me. Uh, let's bow our heads uh, and pray for God's help. So Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Um, uh, Lord, uh, asking that you would uh, speak through your word. We've, we sung already this morning about your coming and worshiping you and adoring you giving you the, the highest hallelujah, declaring that you are holy, 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 Lord, and we are not holy. But through Jesus Christ, we can be declared holy, we can be declared righteous, we can be cleansed, we can be forgiven. And Lord, as we look at the story of how Abraham failed to live up to the calling to which he had been called, Lord, I pray that, that we would learn how to walk humbly before you and that you would produce in us holiness, God. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with my mouth, allow me to speak only that which would build up the body for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. This is one of the reasons why we're committed to teaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line by line. It's because you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you, like, you wouldn't pick this sermon uh, to, uh, to, to preach on. This is not a, and, and, and to do it twice in one, in one calendar year to basically tell uh, the same story, but this is what we are committed to, and there are lessons for us even in that. I'm going to uh, give us an overview of the story and how it, how it plays out, and then we're going to look at some, uh, some application at the end. Here's the first part of the story, Abraham's intentional deception. Abraham's intentional de deception. In, in verse uh, 
uh, 1 of chapter 20, he's headed down to the Negev. That's the same area that on his way to uh, Egypt, that place gets mentioned in Genesis chapter 12. He says that Sarah is my uh, sister. And then, just like it happened in Egypt, again, they had got away with this many times before, but in Egypt, the same thing happened. Pharaoh took Sarah. And here, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, took Sarah. Now, 25 years had gone by since this happened last. Sarah is 90 years old, and she is being brought into this king's harem. And again, God said, this time next year, we don't even, Sarah might actually be pregnant with the long-awaited promised child right now when, God, when, when Abraham does this absolutely cowardly and reckless action and makes his wife vulnerable in multiple ways. So Abraham's intentional deception. Secondly, God's merciful intervention. God's merciful intervention. I love how the way verse 3 begins. It says, but God. But God. God allowed this to happen and he orchestrates this way to teach Abraham and ultimately to teach everyone who reads what Moses wrote on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show us about him that he is merciful, but God. Everyone say that with me, but God. Where would we be without the but God statements in the Bible? There's a, there's a, a great but God statement in a Genesis, a chapter 50. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. Say the bold part with me, okay? It's a, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph's brothers wanted to do evil to Joseph, but God orchestrated it in order to to bring about good. Uh, The psalmist in Psalm 73, uh, again, say the bold part with me, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We will fail. Our flesh and our heart will fail. Abraham's flesh and heart failed when he walked into Gerar that day and he lied, but God is the strength of his heart and his portion uh, forever. There's some amazing but God statements in the New Testament as well. Romans chapter 5, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Say it with me. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then my absolute favorite, favorite in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Say it with me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. Where would we be without the but God statements? This is God's merciful intervention. 
Verse 3, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. The author is trying to make it very, very clear here that Isaac is the son of Abraham. It wasn't as the result of this adulterous, indecent proposal made by, uh, made by Abraham. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did not he himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. That line, will you kill an innocent people in verse 4? Who does Abimelech sound like? He sounds like Abraham in chapter 18. Will you sweep away the, the righteous with the wicked? Will you kill an innocent people? Verse 6, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. God had protected Abimelech from sinning. This is why we need to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation because God can protect us the same way that he protected Abimelech here. And notice how God describes sin. He says, sinning against me. All sin ultimately is an offense against God. If Abimelech had slept with Sarah, that would have been an offense against Sarah. It would have been an offense against Abraham, but ultimately it would have been an offense against God. Similarly, when, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against, against Uriah. But ultimately, he sinned against God, as, as David said in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. All sin is ultimately a sin against God. But here, God intervenes mercifully to protect Sarah's purity and to protect his promise. Then in verse 7, God says, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours. He calls Abraham a prophet, even though Abraham had committed this sin, this cowardly disaster. Moses is called a, a prophet. Moses murdered another man. Moses committed sin. David is called a prophet. We already talked about his sin. Jonah basically did nothing but complain and, and think about himself and wasn't even concerned about the people he was supposed to prophesy uh, towards. And yet Jonah is considered a prophet. And often when we think about prophets, we think about uh, a prophet is speaking on behalf of God to people. But a lot of times when we look at prophets in the Bible, it's not them, it's not God speaking through the prophet to the people. It's often the prophet speaking for the people to God, a praying on their behalf. And that's what Abraham is going to do for, for Abimelech. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom this great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to him, What did you see? 
that you did this thing. Abimelech, what are you thinking? You've done something that you ought not to have done. Third part of the story is this. It's Abraham's pitiful explanation. Abraham's pitiful explanation. Now, before we talk about his explanation here, did you ever wonder, why didn't God just have a dream for Abraham? Why didn't God come to Abraham in a dream and said, what you've done is wrong. You need to go and tell Abimelech that she is your wife. Why did it, why did it come the other way? Well, God has spoken to Abraham a number of times, and God likes to, likes to, to move and work in ways that are often mysterious or, or unexpected. Sure, the simple, real, direct way would be like, Abraham, you did something wrong. I'm going to appear to you in a dream and tell you that. But here is Abraham, who's supposed to represent righteousness and justice, who's supposed to be a blessing to all nations. He is being rebuked by a pagan king. And a pagan king is telling him things like, you are doing things that you ought not to have done. And to hear it from God would have been one thing, but to hear it from Someone who doesn't, you're the one who's supposed to fear God. You're the one who's supposed to be a prophet. You're the one who's supposed to be clinging to the promises. And here is this pagan king rebuking you. God is still speaking to Abraham, but he's speaking to him through this, really, this unbeliever. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever been walking down the the, the pathway of of compromise at, at school? And one of your, your non-Christian friends says, hey, wait, why are you talking like that? Aren't you a Christian? Have you ever made a decision in business and, and one of your colleagues says, hold on a second, hold on a second. I don't, think, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's completely truthful. Have you ever had that happen? Sometimes God allows other people in our lives that we, we would not normally expect to rebuke us. And, and rather than simply receiving what, what God was giving Abraham in the rebuke, Abraham decides to open his mouth. And loved ones, this is just, it goes a lot better. When someone confronts you about sin, you don't need to add little bits of clarification you just need to simply own your sin. And, and Abraham's explanation here, it's pitiful. It's embarrassing. Look at, look, for, first off, he, he begins by blaming his circumstances. He says, he says well, there's, 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 I thought there was no fear of God in this place in verse 11. Abraham recognized that he was living in a sinful world, and so he, he thought he needed to be wise as a serpent, neglecting the part about being as innocent as a dove. He was saying, hey, this is a dog-eat-dog world, and so I'm going I'm to bite first, and, and I, I'm going I'm to preemptively protect myself because of my, my circumstances. Abraham figured that he had no choice. It was either die or sin. 
Yeah, well, sinning is lying. That's right. Yeah, die or lie. That's better. Thank you. Yeah, that's better. Die or lie. That, that preaches. That's really good. Thanks, Robert. Either die or lie. Say it with me. Die or lie. And so often, Satan is always trying to reduce our options, thinking that I, I, I have no choice in the matter here. I have to sin. I have to compromise. There's no way out. I must be as wise as a serpent. I can't be as innocent as a dove, but that's, that's not what God's word tells us. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Abraham blamed his circumstances. Secondly, he clings to a technicality. He says in, in verse 12, well, Sarah is the daughter of my father. Technically, she is my sister. And uh, marriage, uh, relationships, family, all of this, again, this is before the, the giving of the law of Moses. And, and so Abraham came from a very complicated family a background. Sarah was the daughter of his father, but not of his mother. It is a half-truth. But a half-truth can often be, as one commentator said, a half-truth can add up to a full lie. What is the most relevant piece of information for Abraham to share about his relationship with Sarah? As he goes into a new city and as he meets, what is the most relevant piece of information? Is it that they're brother and sister or is it that they're married? No, the most relevant bit of information is that they're married. And he intentionally admitted that. He was deceptive. And then thirdly, he seems to blame God in this backhanded way. Look at, look at verse 13. When God caused me to wander. He sounds a little bit like Adam that says, the woman that you gave to me gave me the fruit and I ate. Listen, if we start making excuses about our sin, eventually we start blaming our circumstances. We want to talk about a technicality. We want to blame other people. Ultimately, we're going to find ourselves blaming God. That's what Abraham does. When God caused me to wander, is that what God, all of a sudden God just said, hey, Abraham, go wander. No, he gave him promises. He gave him blessing. He gave him protection over these past 25 years. He didn't just say, go wander. He said, go to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will give you offspring. But there's no mention of promise. There's no mention of blessing. Just that God had caused him to wander. And then again, we learn from verse 13 that this was something that they did in every place that they went. So we have Abraham's intentional deception, God's merciful intervention, Abraham's pitiful explanation, 
And then fourthly, the story's hopeful conclusion. The story's hopeful conclusion. In verse 14, again, this sounds a lot like Pharaoh in Egypt. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your inheritance in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Did you catch that? Behold, I have given your brother, not your husband. Hey, hey, that, that, that brother of yours, I've, I've given him a, a whole lot of stuff. And by the way, your, Sarah, you are vindicated. Not Abraham, he's not vindicated, but you are vindicated. Go tell your brother he can have any part of the land that he wants. Make sure your brother gets all that money that I gave him. And then verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Uh, There were plagues in chapter 12 uh, because of uh, uh, Sarah being in Pharaoh's harem, and it seems that there was something similar happening uh, in Gerar. Verse 17 says that Abraham prayed. Again, that's kind of awkward. Abraham was was the one who created this whole mess. And yet Abraham has to be the one who who has to lead spiritually still. And anyone who in any way holds any responsibility of spiritual leadership whether it's a mother over her children, a Hope Kids teacher leading a class, a father over his, uh, over his family, a husband over his wife, an elder in a church, a deacon. There will be times where you fall flat on your face. And there will be times where God is going to tell you, I need you to stand up and lead. And this is what happens with, with Abraham. Abraham is the prophet, and he is the one who has to pray. I'm sure he would have, Abimelech, you seem to have this, why don't you pray? You seem to have this, this seems to be clearer to you than it is to me, and God appeared to you in a dream. You would expect Abraham just to be, you know what? Okay, someone else, oh, Sarah, can you, can you pray? Anyone, anyone but me, okay? I just, I don't want the attention on me, but someone's got to stand up and lead, you might be in a Hope Kids classroom and things start spinning out of, spinning out of control and then you raise your voice at a couple of, of kids and, and you give in to anger and then everyone's sort of looking at you and then you're like, and now I got to teach the Bible story. Or you might be late picking up your wife for the important uh, uh, event and you've, you've really let her down and, and, and you're, you're proving to, to be not the responsible man that you need to be as a husband. And yet when it comes to a prayer before meals or, or, or prayer at night before bed, it, it's on you. <laughs> you got you to gotta lead 
Now, there are, there are some sins, obviously, that are significant enough where if you fall flat on your face right before the finish line and, and injure yourself and injure others, then maybe you're, maybe you're disqualified from the race. Or, but, but there are other sins where you just, you just need to get up, acknowledge what happened, and continue to move and walk in repentance. And so the fact that Abraham prays here, there is a hopeful conclusion to the story. He prays and wombs are opened. And that's been the problem for the last 25 years is the opening of a womb. And chapter 21 is going to, the, the, the hopeful conclusion is going to lead to the ultimate fulfillment of that promise of Isaac's arrival. But let me just share with you five things that that I really took from this obscure story and the fact that this story is recorded in Egypt and in Gerar in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. Let me share with you five things that I hope would be helpful for you. Number one, God's people can fall into repetitive patterns of sin. Remember from verse 13, this was what they did in every place. It, it didn't just happen twice. Uh, and Abraham had found a way to, to trust in God's promises and believe, but in the practical, in the everyday life, he still compromised. He still sinned in this way. And this can happen in the life of a believer Secondly, God's people can seem to get away with sin for a season. And, and just like Abraham, he was ready with his explanations. Well, technically she is my sister. He had that in his back pocket, right? He was ready to go with that. He had it rationalized in his mind. I believe this about God, but I live something different. And the longer you get away with something, the more your rationalizations seem to make sense. Thirdly, God loves his people too much to allow sin to continue. God loves his people too much to allow sin to continue. God intervened. Verse 3, but God. He wasn't going to let this happen anymore. When Moses was talking to the tribes who lived on the other side of the Jordan River and the commitment that they were making, he told them in Numbers chapter 32, he said, be sure your sin will find you out. You're going from one pagan city to another pagan city. They're not going to hold you accountable for lying about your sister, especially if they believe the lie. But eventually, your sin will find you out. What you do behind closed doors, what you do in your, in your own thoughts or your own mind, or, or what you do with your finances and your business that no one knows about, your, listen, your sin will find you out. You might get away for it, for a season, but God loves you too much to allow it to continue. 
Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. If we keep sowing sin into our lives, even if we seem to be getting away with it, even if we can somehow rationalize it in our minds, we will eventually reap the consequences of those sins. God loves us too much to allow sin to continue. Fourthly, our sin affects other people. Our sin affects other people. It affected Abimelech. Not just Abimelech, it said it affected his entire kingdom. Abraham was not being a blessing to the nations at this point. He was bringing plagues and curse and sickness to the nations. It affected Sarah in, in having, leading her continuously. Oh, this is the kind, how manipulative is that? This is the kindness. This is the hesed, steadfast love that you need to, that you need to show to me, Sarah. It affected her. It even affected Isaac, the long-awaited son, because in Genesis chapter 26, when Isaac goes to another city, actually he goes to Gerar, he does, he does the same thing in, in Genesis chapter 26. But here's the thing. When he lies about Rebekah, it wasn't a half-truth at all. It's just a full-out lie. There was no technicality that uh, Isaac had, had, had just picked up this this. this deceptiveness, and this is how you, this is how you live in, in the world, this disconnect between trusting in God's promises and theory, but not actually living it out in day to day. So our sin affects other people, and then lastly, our sin cannot stop God from fulfilling His promises. God intervened. He loved Abraham too much. He appeared in that dream. He orchestrated things such that Abraham would be maximally convicted by, by, by these uh, circumstances. He protected Sarah. He protected Sarah's purity so that the promise could ultimately be fulfilled in chapter 21 with the birth of Isaac. Our sin cannot stop God from fulfilling his promises. Isaac is the long-awaited promised son of 25 years, but there is a, another promised son, not, not just promised to Abraham and, and Sarah, uh, not, not just a, a promised to, uh, to the generations before them, but promised to Adam and Eve, this offspring who was going to be born, who would crush the head of the serpent. And he is the ultimate promised son. You see, Abraham, even though he's a great man of faith, failed and was a failure, yet God showed himself to be faithful. Abraham needed a Savior. You and I need a Savior. Abraham failed as a husband. He didn't protect his bride. The promised son, Jesus Christ, always protects his bride. Abraham said, Sarah, you go be vulnerable and I'll stay safe over here. 
I'll tell a lie that will put you in harm's way. Where Jesus, the great husband, says, no, bride, I am going to protect you. Not with lies to protect myself. I am going to speak the truth. And I am going to be vulnerable. I am going to allow myself to be killed to save you. Not like Abraham, you go over there so that I can be saved from being killed. Abraham needed a savior, just like you and I need a savior. And maybe you're here today and you are. You're, you're living a deja vu disaster. There are certain things in your life that you've begun to tolerate. There are certain practices uh, or habits privately or publicly that you have allowed to take root in your life. And maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and, and God is showing that to you so that you would turn to him and believe in him, believe that he suffered and died on the cross so that you could receive forgiveness, so that you could receive the Holy Spirit and be given the gift of eternal life. But there are a number of people who are here today who are a lot like Abraham and who are a lot like me at different times in my life, where things get rationalized or explained away, and there's a massive disconnect between what I believe about God and what holy living ought to look like and how I'm actually living. And you already are a Christian. You've already placed your faith in Jesus. Well, listen... It's not just, repentance is not just one moment in time where I walk to the front of a church or I, or I prayed a prayer. Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. And, and Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he, he got his disciples around and, and he, he, he wanted them to know, you're going to need, like what I'm about to go through tomorrow, you're going to need to remember that Every day of your life. And, and, and as often as you come together to, uh, to worship me. And so he, he took bread and said, this is my body. And he took a cup and he said, this is my blood. So that, so that we can have these regular reminders. So that we can be jolted out of these, these repetitive, self-protective, deceptive sins in our life. Some of you might be here today and thinking, well, well listen, I, I, I've, I saw the communion trays laid out and, and because of what happened a couple of days ago or because of what, because of what happened yesterday, I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy to come and, and to take. Listen, that is the complete wrong mindset about communion. That, that, that if you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, he is, he is faithful and just to cleanse us and, and, and to forgive us. And communion is not meant for the, the tidy Christians who aren't struggling with anything. Communion is meant for all of us who are trying to follow Jesus but often stumble along the way. And, and the, the, the bread and the cup are a continual reminder that Jesus suffered and died for our sins so that we could be forgiven.